Hey, it's Lou Carlozzo, the host of the Bankadelic podcast in Chicago. Some years ago, I was at a banking conference and I heard a wise man say this. The pace of digital change has never been this fast before and will never be this slow again. Who said that? Well, none other than Jim Maroos, who is considered one of the wisest, smartest, and I have to say most entertaining guys in the banking industry. He is the co-publisher of the financial brand and also the CEO and publisher of the Digital Banking Report. And over the years reporting on financial services, I have leaned on Jim again and again and again. And guess what? He is the guest today on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to today's show and we are delighted, absolutely delighted to have a very special guest. He's arguably the number one fintech influencer in the world, Jim Marouche. So, Jim, would you mind introducing yourself and just telling everybody a little bit about yourself, please? Well, for those who don't know me, I am the co-publisher of The Financial Brand, which is the second largest digital publication in the banking industry globally. I am also the CEO and publisher of the Digital Banking Report, which creates reports throughout the year on what's going on in the banking industry. And I'm also the host of the Banking Transform podcast. As a little bit further back, I started the banking industry right out of university, worked for different financial institutions from bigger to smaller during about the first 15 years of my career, and then started in the digital and data-based marketing field, where my background always was based in marketing, even in the financial institutions. But it was interesting, and the role I played in digital and data-based marketing was always working with financial institutions. So my clients were all financial institutions, ranging from the mid-size to the very largest. So I was on one side of the desk, the other side of the desk. And then as part of the need or desire to open more doors, but also to prove to people that I was not going to stop learning as a person, I started writing and publishing and did it on my own and then joined the financial brand. It was about two years after I started doing it on my own. And that's been the story ever since. I'm now basically all around content. And my personal perspective, and David, you know this, is that I'm really trying to pay it backwards to the industry that had been very good to me. And by paying it backwards, I try very hard to do whatever I can to help educate and illuminate what should be done in banking from my perspective but it's playing out pretty much as figured. It just took longer than I thought to say, geez, the things I've been talking about for most of my career 
are starting to become requirements as opposed to desirables. Absolutely. But your ability to create sort of incredible content, I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. So we actually met in Shenzhen last year, and we'll come back to that. But I mean, man, by I think it took you one night to write this incredible article. I sort of sat there just in awe with my jaw on the ground going, how the hell did he manage to pull that one out the bag? It's kind of tough writing content. Oh, it is. And to do it regularly. And sometimes it's more regular than others. But you put yourself on a schedule. In my first year writing, I took a summer off of my writing to follow my son in his sports endeavors and realized when I came back that some people were just mad that I stopped. Some were thinking I was dead and came back to life. And overall, you realize that if you're going to create content, you not only need frequency, but you need a cadence. So they've got to know when they can find you because nobody has so much time in their day that they're going to go looking for you. And so my role has been to take research that's been created in the industry, some of it my own, some of it others, and to try to open the doors to this research for other people to see. And then if they find my article interesting about the insights, then hopefully, because most articles always are going to have links, they can dig deeper. So I consider us the gateway to an expanded education in financial services. And it's been a nice model. Obviously, became even nicer because of COVID. I mean, it's interesting that with no events and no ability to put salespeople on the street, the desire and need for content has exploded. And my calendar reflects it. One of the things that I hope, you know, when we go back to physical conferences, because I can't imagine there aren't many people that haven't read something from the financial brand because they can't be in touch with the industry if they haven't, right? But there might not be as many people that have experienced you in a live show. And that's the other side of you. You're just a natural storyteller and a showman when it comes to the presentation. I just love watching you at conferences. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. As you know, part of it is that I have fun. I mean, the reality is, be it the podcast, be it live events, be it virtual events, be it webinars, even when we had webinars that didn't have our faces involved, I try very hard to show my enthusiasm in what I do. I still love this business. It's a crazy business, but I love it. And I love the potential that there is for anybody to achieve whatever they want, be it in banking or not in banking. I talk about embrace change take risks and disrupt yourself. I mean that wholeheartedly. My dad said this, and I've lived to it. If you don't wake up wanting to go to work, you've stayed at that job too long. He goes, you've got to love what you do because otherwise it shows. And I've been very fortunate, I mean, throughout my career that good opportunities have come at a time when probably I needed them. I have never mailed it in, I don't think. Not one day in my life. And I live to my dad's mantra that says, you know, wake up every day. No one's going to be the best day. Don't carry anything from the previous day. You know, don't go backwards, go forwards and have fun. You know, that's one thing that live presentations allow you to do. You can get on stage and have fun with the audience, hopefully give them some insights, but do it in a way that's entertaining. I mean, the people I like seeing the most are all entertainment with a lot of knowledge as opposed to to the other way around. Nobody wants to see slides, you know, nobody wants to see charts, but they wouldn't mind getting enlightened. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. I was lucky enough to have two days with you and Matt Dooley in Shenzhen where 
we learnt a lot. It was like a two-day conference where we were constantly being bombarded by things. We were bombarded by the future in many ways. And we'll go back and say, oh, by the way, this was mid-January of 2020. So for us, COVID was already in China. And that trip, by the way, over the weeks that followed, in three weeks, I went to Shenzhen, Seattle, San Francisco, Boston, and New York City. I'm sure that someone's going to say, wait, did Jim get tested? Because if not, he's the one that went to all the worst places you could have been at that time. It's crazy looking back. I was very lucky. We all stayed healthy, or we think we did, kind of. But Shenzhen was the biggest eye-opening experience of my professional career because it gave you an amazing glimpse into the future of banking, data, analytics. Give us an example. Oh, yeah. Like, Which company well, was the most? Uh, gosh, probably, jeez. What would you say, David, from your perspective? You know, there's so many. The one which, you know, just took my breath away was actually WeBank. I think what was incredible about WeBank was we were privileged to see their control centre. So from there, they can see what's going on across China in terms of live transaction data. And the volumes are just absolutely extraordinary, you know, in terms of what's going through. I guess the way they look at product development was, you know, let's spin up a product which is right for a customer segment and let's get it live in days. And... WeBank, Alibaba, the insurance company, WeLab, every one of those organizations use consumer data to provide financial services and a better quality of life to the most underbanked, less likely consumer and made money doing so. And, you know, this is one of these aha moments when you walked away from there and said every single organization dug deep into the demographic categories way further than anybody in the UK or the US and did it because they were able to use the most minute amount of data to determine where was the risk. I mean, you look at the fact that WeLabs was taking mobile data and determining who may be risky and the ability to provide financial services, to provide Alibaba, be able to deliver food to your house within 20 minutes anywhere in China because of their distribution centers. You said, this is Amazon five years from now. You looked at WeBank and you said, oh, this is maybe PayPal two years from now. But the use of data, the integration of data technology and the passion in every instance, and I don't think it was this show, for the consumer, mind you, it was revenue-based. But they were so far ahead of other organizations in China. In fact, many of them were supplying back office support to other banks in China. But you just got such a feel for what's possible. And the people were just super passionate about doing what they were doing. Yeah, and I think, you know, I agree with that. There was a lot of passion. There was a lot of talk about company culture as well. A lot of recognition that maybe China's viewed as, you know, culture isn't as important as perhaps in other countries. So, you know, what we saw is a lot of evidence where culture was kind of taken into account a lot. 
But going back to your comments about data, when we chatted to Ping An, for instance, what was fascinating about them is they started with auto insurance and then they bought a site where you could get content about cars. And, you know, they basically understand the consumer journey so much that they were saying by the time someone arrives in a dealership, their car's been made because they pretty much know what that person's going to order. And they sell that information to the car manufacturers as a way to build a revenue model in an open banking environment. And the other part too, and I keep on forgetting it when I talk about it initially, is the commitment to R&D at Huawei and certainly at WeBank. You have a situation that Huawei, you had a campus that was built almost like Disney style, a European campus where 25,000 young R&D people are working continuously to improve the products they're delivering. The commitment to R&D in the States, the only thing I can think comparable is probably what's being done at markets by Goldman Sachs as a percentage of employees, and it shows. You have a better business plan. You're able to go to digital banking because it becomes a digital experience issue. So, yeah, it was a great visit, but it's one that continues to pay off. You said the R&D is better than even the tech companies or just... It was better than U.S. financial services companies. Financial services. And actually, good, good point that to see a campus with 25,000, and this was certainly Huawei is a tech company more than financial services. But, you know, it's the expansion of technology. It's the commitment. Well, we saw it at WeBank, all the tech people that were there and their customer care area at WeBank was almost like an on-demand. So the product managers are at their desk. They were working at that time. If something came in that had to be dealt with, they'd go to their other computer, which is in the customer care area, and they solved it immediately. It's all about speed. And as we think about the way things have come out in a post-COVID world, Jay Baer, the great customer experience evangelist, said it really well. He goes, today, caring is equated to speed and simplicity. In other words, if something isn't easy and fast, the consumer processes is, this company doesn't care for me. They're not looking out for my best interest, and they're certainly not looking out for my commitment to time, which is a big deal when you look at it and say, you know what, if you can't make things fast and easy, you're not digital. Just because you allow me to do something digitally doesn't make you digital. In the case of the banks though, right? Like Amazon, the core product, like buying a product and getting it, and even processing refunds, that all works seamlessly and it's super guaranteed. And the core product was fine. The add-ons were like, yeah, this is a great incentive for me to get the subscription. And we all know that most people don't, right? But banks were doing that as well. Like we have banks that give you free travel and mobile claims, other insurances, etc. right? And nobody really uses most of those things. But the problem is, the core product of banking was just like full of friction and not very well delivered. And that's why I think is the big difference between the two. You're exactly right. Plus, the bank's add-ons are usually things you don't use very often. So, you know, Amazon may have a banking product, but I go to Amazon twice a week to buy something. And it may be something that is nothing more than personal care products that I can get in my drugstore. I don't even look at the price because I go, it's going to be delivered to me by tomorrow. Why do I have to think about what I have to go for? And most of the time, they're reminding me going, by the way, that order of Advil, you're probably due for a reorder. I go, oh, my God, you're right. I probably should reorder. And I reorder ahead of time. 
or in some cases order too much. But, you know, you bring that up, though, that the bank's friction overall, my big concern for banks, Amazon's got revenue from multiple places. Amazon today could offer every consumer $200 to open up an Amazon checking account and never impact significantly their bottom line. Why? Because they have the revenue from another place. It's the beauty of open banking, where if you have revenue from multiple sources, you can go to those sources that don't make you a lot of money, and you could put an offer out there. Oh, and by the way, it could be a variable offer, and they could say, Jim Roos generates $1,000 a year in revenue from the retail side alone. He pays $100 for that, right? You know, so, okay, add another 100 how much can we offer him to get that checking account that, oh, by the way, this can be worth more because he already has the Amazon card and some other things. And Darmesh, we discussed this before the show. My concern is most retail bankers, they're not dumb. They know what the challenge is. You're about to have every big tech company eat your lunch and put the bar so high that catching up may be out of the question. Now, community banks, the really small community banks, I don't have a concern for because they're going to continue to draw consumers as long as they don't make it too difficult to open an account. The biggest banks, I think they'll become more like the big, big techs. The ones I'm worried about is that middle. The same middle that got impacted on the fintech side during COVID, you know, how do you change legacy thinking? How do you get funding if you're not a true name brand? How do you make a difference when there's 12 other companies making the same difference so it's not a difference? Again, the mid-regionals and what we're seeing in the U.S., which is crazy, you're seeing some of them combined together. And you're going, okay, I'm sorry, I've seen this song and dance before in the beginning of my career where they put unsuccessful savings loans together and thought they'd make a good bank. It doesn't happen because... The legacy leadership is really, at the end of the day, what drives everything. If you have leadership that thinks of banking as they did 20 years ago, and they're surrounded by a lot of other bankers doing the same thing, how do you change? How do you disrupt yourself? The end goal, if they don't know the destination, there's no point in the journey in between, right? You end up in the wrong place. Well, yeah, exactly. And by the way, I do recommend that your listeners pick up the book, Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's about personal habits, about personal change. But more importantly, in the third chapter, I think, he talks about the fact that you can't look at a goal that you want to have and say, I'm going to achieve that tomorrow. I'm not going to lose 40 pounds tomorrow. But what you need to do is break into the little parts. So his example is the British cycling team that many years ago, they sucked. They just were terrible. And the cycling team said, you know what? We don't have to change overnight, but we need to find those little improvements that are going to make an incremental atomic habit change. Maybe it's new suits, new biking suits. Start at the bottom of a country where you have two roads that go to the north. And if you make a 1% difference in your route, at the end of that route, You're going to be miles or kilometers apart, wide. And the thing is, the British cycling team, they realize, oh, if we grease up our suits, if we train in a different way, if we eat things differently, if we got some modifications to our bikes and every little modification would only take off maybe a hundredth of a second. But 
in road racing and bike racing, the differences aren't that great. And that's where I'm going to take digital transformation. If you look at digital transformation and go, we need a new legacy system. We got to fix back office processes. We got to be innovators. We got to use data analytics better. Those are massive items that can't be done overnight. But if you say, we're going to focus only on simplifying our new account opening process, that's it. That's the only digital transformation we're going to do. We're going to take it from 10 minutes to one minute. You're going to end up, if people do the research, they're going to realize they have 60 to 80% abandonment rate in a new account process. If I get rid of that, I go from marginally profitable to insanely not only profitable, but the business model is stronger. And I can take care of the other things later. So much of this comes back to actually understanding people and what's important and data and for me this is about a kind of renaissance around customer thinking you know so the more you understand about people the more value you can kind of deliver to them so I guess what's kind of interesting about I'll pick on Apple and we talked about this with some people before but they understand that privacy is really important I don't know, but I can almost imagine 20 years ago or 15 years ago, someone in Apple saying, well, look, if we can win the hearts and minds of people around privacy, we've got permission to do anything that we want to do. And, you know, obviously we're not going to want to harm our customers, but it kind of opens up doors. Oh, it takes it off the table. It takes it off the table. So a person buys Apple products, they don't intuitively just say, I'm picking them because they're better with my privacy. However, however, you don't take it off the table because they haven't been that good. So, you know, it's funny. We've gotten to the point where we can't wait for the next product. I'm a person that is monitoring a lot of my health right now. I also need to watch my blood sugar. Well, I've heard through multiple sources that the new Apple Watch come out in September is going to be able to monitor your blood sugar content and going to give you other physical things that it's going to do it. Heck, I'm totally bought into closing my three rings every day. But if you start giving me information about my health that's deeper than just my heart rate, guess what? I'm already saying, okay, I can't wait till September. I want the year to speed up right now because I know I'm buying the new Apple Watch. Heck, I've had mine for three years. That's as long as I've had any Apple technology. But the thing is, though, you look forward to that. And do I think for a second, do I really want Apple to know about my health care? Actually, yeah, I do. Because maybe Apple will combine with Chase Bank to say, oh, by the way, Jim, we see that you're monitoring this, this, and this. We're going to give you a financial incentive. We'll deposit X amount of money every month. You keep your A1C below six. And all of a sudden, I'm going, now you've combined healthcare with financial services? How, log- how logical is that? Oh, you sure as heck are going to have an insurance company combined with that as well, saying, oh, if you do that, we'll lower your healthcare rates. We may even lower your home insurance rates because we know if you're healthy, you're going to be there longer. And that is the challenge the industry faces is that other people are thinking about, you know, consumer trends, consumer behavior and starting to say, well, how do we align ourselves to this in an elegant way? We're well over the 20 minute limit, but thank you so much. We're going to go to a part one and a part two of this show. There you go. Uh, And probably a part three, to be honest with you. You know, our eyes been opened in Shenzhen and, you know, it was great to have that time with you because... We were like kids in a candy shop, I think. We were like, wow. For me, it opened my eyes to 
the possibilities. And ever since then, my life has been filled with fun. So, David, I'm asking you, how many times did you take a credit card out of your wallet when you were in China? None. Oh, by the way, how many times did you use cash? Oh, that's right. We never had cash. Oh, in fact, thanks to Matt Dooley, we never had to pay for anything. But if we had, everything he did was based on mobile payments. In fact, when we went to eat one night, they actually had charging things for your phone because everything in China is phone-based. So you could charge your phone while having dinner, which was ordered on a mobile device, even though it was all in the same restaurant. And while we're doing that, Matt scheduled our massages all by mobile phone. And again, what's interesting is ever since I got back from Shenzhen, Problems with stiffness in the no, shoulders. No. But what's interesting, I no longer take my wallet anywhere. I select my merchants based on who doesn't require cash and doesn't require plastic. And I know those few times, it's usually a restaurant, that you're going to need to use a piece of plastic. So I have one in the car. But the reality is cash no longer makes any difference, except to those people that don't have accounts. And you say, okay, I give them cash, but... The guy who does my driveway, the guy who cuts my lawn says, do you have Apple Pay? Do you have, you know, do you have Square Cash? Do you have Venmo? I'd rather get paid that way. Absolutely. These are the big fundamental changes. They happen so quickly. So I will have the last word. You told me on that trip that start writing content. And, you know, I've started writing content. And it's been, it has been really interesting to see. And it's been really good. So thank you so much. We look forward to chatting again soon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Don Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.